Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In this episode, we visit with Eric Dezenhall, author of False Light, in which old school reporting meets the Me Too movement against the backdrop of sensationalist modern media. When Sanford Fuse Petty learns that his godfather was sexually assaulted by a millennial media mogul on a top social media site, he jumps in to help. Instead of going to the police, he hatches a shady, entertaining, and ultimately satisfying plan for revenge. Martin Clark, author of The Substitution Order, had this to say about the book. False Light is a masterwork, smart, funny, unpredictable, freewheeling, and start-to-finish entertaining. The plotting is brilliant, the dialogue always sharp. Better yet, perhaps, this novel is a good news reminder that we can always find measures of virtue and fairness and hard truth in justice's difficult alchemy. My name is Landis Wade, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. You can find out more about me at my author website, LandisWade.com, and I'd love to have you visit. For all things related to the podcast, check out CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. You can find a lot of great resources there. We have show notes of every episode with pictures of the authors, photographs of their book covers, links to their websites and social media, and more. And we have the community blog there. It's a collection of readerly and writerly content provided by writers in the community and authors who've been on the show. And you can sign up for the book report at our website, charlottereadspodcast.com. We send it out every two weeks. It's free. We don't spam you. That takes way too much time. We just keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast, provide a dose of inspiration, provide some free content from time to time, some links and other fun stuff related to the uh, reading and writing world. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a collection of author-hosted podcasts putting out uh, this kind of content to a worldwide audience. And you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcast. You can also check out our Patreon page. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is a place where we provide exclusive content uh, for our supporters. For just a few dollars a month, we provide access to exclusive audio interviews between me and authors who have appeared on the show where they share their wisdom about uh, writing and the business of writing. It's a great way to get a good education if you're a lifelong learner like I am. But enough with this prologue. Let's meet today's author. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, congratulations on the book. Thank you. It's always nice to crank one out. Yeah, well, I really enjoyed it. It was a fast pace. Uh, you know, I really got into it. I love the first person, sort of the snarky but intelligent take on the world. Do you see any of yourself in Sanford Fuse Petty? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think uh, I don't commit uh, the crimes that he commits in the book, um, uh, but I, I do think uh, the the age range is right, the personality and the outlook is is right. So yes, I do. I do see a lot of that. It's always interesting to me that people tend to think that the character is one hundred percent you. When my first novel came out, somebody said. 
I had no idea you grew up in a casino. And I went, <laughs> I, I, I didn't. I made it up. Um, oh, well, so uh, I, I think some people overdo it with um, the autobiographical nature. But yeah, that I think that his worldview is very similar to mine. Yeah, and that's a great review by Martin Clark. We had Martin on the uh, podcast. And listeners, you should go check that out because I interviewed him about his book, The Substitution Order. I don't know if you've read it, Eric, but it's a I great book. He's fantastic. I love him. Yeah, it's a great book. And uh, me being a lawyer, I, I love the way he threw the twists in there, you know, with the lawyer who's down on his back trying to come back. And a little bit like you do with Sanford Fuse Petty in this book. He's kind of a – he's instead of an aging lawyer, he's an aging journalist, right? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah he, he is. So uh, – um, and, and you talk about that in the book. You're dealing, you know, every good book, right? You, you've got this, we're going to talk about the characters and and, the, and sort of the plots in this book, but every good book has an underlying theme. And you've got a lot of underlying themes, one of which is the age of the character, uh, the protagonist, and what he's dealing with. It was family, his changes in life, uh, changes in the profession. I'm sure you're feeling some of that uh, as well, having spent a long career uh, in business. So, uh how much of that that's percolating up into the story is some of you having thoughts on this this life experience yourself? A lot. Um, you know, Fuse is Fuse is his nickname. He got it uh, when he was uh, in junior high. I'll let the reader figure out where Fuse comes from when they when they read the book. Right. Um, but a, a lot of what he's going through, he's in his mid fifties. Uh, he was once a hotshot reporter. Uh, journalism is not really needed anymore. Uh, I mean, the Kardashians won <laughs> and he lost. And what do you do when you're sufficiently young that God willing, you have years ahead of you, but the skill set that you have is no longer valued. Uh, he is also someone who, uh, while not a, a, a bad guy, he's not sufficiently woke for the young people who he works with and they want him out and um he is he you know what do you do when uh, your life has come to a point where uh you're not really useful to the marketplace anymore yet you're not 98 years old and can be overly philosophical about time so he's he's nervous about it he feels obsolete uh his daughter uh, is in her teens, doesn't want to spend time with him. He's worried about uh, failing his family because he's out of a job. And uh, he doesn't, in his 50s, he's not able to go and run six miles like like he used to. And uh, he's scared. He's really scared. And he's also a dinosaur when it comes to technology. And uh, there's this funny little scene. And he, I think he's got he, he's got a flip phone. He, he doesn't get an iPhone until later in the book. And that's just because uh, his daughter makes him. But there's this little scene. He says, hey, he's talking to his daughter. Hey, can you help me with this YouTube thing? What YouTube thing, Dad? You know, the website with all the videos. That's YouTube. Yeah, yeah, right. YouTube. Dad, YouTube's a band. I mean, God, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And part of it is with him, his his weakness with technology is not particularly ideological. He's not a Luddite. He just doesn't have the kind of brain that is able to interact with it. And nor do I, by the way. I mean, I use technology all day long, obviously. We're doing it now. But my the kind of intellect it requires to, I mean, I guess you might say ergonomically, to, to interact with it, it's just not the kind of brain that I have. Um, and it's not the kind of brain he has. He also has the issue that technology act actively hates him. 
he he gets into an elevator that he pushes a button. It, it doesn't light up. Uh, he gets near automatic opening doors. The doors don't see him and they don't open. And that is kind of a comic conceit throughout the book that, that uh, in fact, I say this on the first page, that the world is kind of saying to Fuse, look, we don't really want you here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's trying to figure out how to deal with that. I think that's a struggle that, uh, you know, we all go through with so much has exploded in the technology world in the last 20 years. You know, for I can remember my first day of practicing law in 1983 when, you know, we didn't even have, um, I don't think we had fax machines yet. And we, we were just. No, now, that was 84. Yeah, we, and we were just getting Federal Express, which is an amazing thing that you could get a document sent to you, you know, in a day or two. And uh, it used to be a little less. Uh, I mean, you could write a letter, you send it out. It'd be a couple of days. You could breathe. You know, maybe something would come back. But now it's instantaneous, right? You can't even finish typing before somebody's responded. No, I mean, I, I remember my career began in Washington working in the media operation of the Reagan White House. And mm. back even in those days, you would get a letter, you would evaluate it from the media, you would send a letter in response. Occasionally you called. Uh, but the time the time delay was extraordinary. Now there is a demand for immediacy. There's also the inability to control it. I mean, my day job is relevant here. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I have run a crisis management firm since uh, 1987. And I've been in the field since even, well, 1982, three. Um, but you used to have some degree, not of control over what the media would run, but if there were a problem, you might choose to be quiet or you might uh, you might take some time to respond. You might choose to pull your advertising during a crisis. Now it's gotten so bad that the crisis is over. The controversy is over before it began because there are no referees. Uh, there was once a time that if I were to call uh, Dan Rather in the 1980s and say, Landis is a serial killer, he would say, well, how do you know that? And I would have to prove it. And if I couldn't prove it, it wouldn't run. Now I just get on Twitter. And what do you do about it? And a lot of uh, what happens in the book is Fuse is disgusted with the demise of journalism, but he comes upon a nemesis in a sexual predator who is a, a new age ambush, media ambush artist who likes ruining people. And Fuse is able to use his, um, the bad guy's ways against him because a lot of what the book deals with is how can you ruin someone that you don't like? And one of the things I've noticed is people who like destroying other people using different media have no conception that it can happen to them. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up your work in uh, crisis management. I looked on your website. Uh, you've got 30 years of executive level experience as crisis communications management counselor. Uh, you, you do this thing. Uh, it's kind of public affairs, but you do different aspects of it. And I was reading something that says, we defend reputations. We combat operational regulatory conflicts. We refute wrongful attacks. We neutralize motivated adversaries. We defy agenda-driven assaults. We impact outcomes. And I'm thinking to myself, would Sanford Fuse Petty have been in trouble with the scheme he created in false light 
if you had been hired by media mogul Pacho Craig to, to take him down? <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting. I do a lot of work with journalists. I mean, part yeah. of me is a journalist. I mean, I've right. written investigative books and things like that. And so I have both affection for journalists, but I also fight them. Um, and I think that in in my day job, it would have been more likely that um, that the real Eric would have been at war with somebody like Fuse if I had a, a, a client that was doing some bad stuff or was accused of doing bad stuff. Um, a lot of times, though, what I've had to do is go to war with different media. Um, and I think one of the challenges we have is we're running into people like the character in the book, Pacho, who is of a younger generation. Uh, journalism used to be about research, reporting, digging. Now it's who can I ruin by four o'clock? Um, you know, can I ruin them in a story? Can I then I get on cable news and talk about it? Can I get a book deal uh, by the following evening? And can I get the movie deal based on the book um, by the next day? And who will play me? Will it be Bradley Cooper? And so it's really it's really become about character assassination. And a lot of what uh, False Light deals with is character assassination. And I know you probably as an attorney uh, recognize this, but false light is a term from defamation law. And the most simple way to put it is if I, um, if, if I were to say Landis is a serial killer in all seriousness, uh, in an article, you might have a case for defamation against my publication. But what if I did an article and I had a picture of Charles Manson and Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy, and then in the lower right had a story about Landis and his podcast and had your picture there? Well, somebody just turning the page could go, are you kidding? Ted Bundy? Landis? Um, you know, you might have a false light claim for just putting you in a bad position. And a lot of what the book deals with is how do you ruin somebody without technically violating defamation law? And that's that's something that I see with see every day in my career, because there is, for all intents and purposes, no defamation law in America. You are legally allowed to run with false information. And a lot of people don't know that. And a lot of my clients who are very sophisticated people and organizations, they're under the impression that if the media uh, runs with something inaccurate, that they have a claim. They don't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you do that to effect in the book with uh, Pacha. He sort of follows these people around. He jumps them he, he makes accusations. He gets these videos of them sort of reacting, surprised and that kind of thing. And then he goes on and he says, now, I'm not saying Landis and his podcast are a serial killer, but let me talk to you about some of the things that happened, yada, yada, yada. And you're sort of you know, putting out there this idea that, uh, you know, this person is connected in a bad way. And that raises a question based upon your experience uh, and what you do is, and given the change in the cycle, how hard is it for someone to repair the reputation when they're wrongfully attacked like that, because as a trial lawyer, I know the jury sometimes, I mean, they'll remember the first things they've told. They're told in a trial sometimes, and then they'll get stuck in their head. And then you're fighting to overcome 
that original bias. Is the same thing turning out to be true in real life? Very much. I mean, I think it's a very good observation uh, on your part because, I mean, take my ridiculous Landis is a serial killer observation. I mean, we're obviously having this conversation that is meant to be, uh, you know, funny and ridiculous. But if I, with a straight face, uh, were to write an article uh, Landis is a serial killer and you are figuring out what to do. Well, if you have to defend it, you're going to, you risk reminding everyone of the original allegation and you risk a scenario where people are watching you on Good Morning in America denying you're a serial killer. And a lot of people are going, I never had heard that Landis was a serial killer. And now he's saying he's not. And one of the things we see in our business is when people, there's a tendency for people in my field, uh, in my realm of reputation, to believe that if you give a detailed answer, um, that will vindicate you. The fact is, more information often leads to a deeper feeling among an audience that you're up to no good. <laughs> yeah. And, and Landis is not going to respond to that because I've just gotten advice from Eric not to do that. We'll just leave that alone, right? Very, yeah. very good. And I, and, and I won't mention anything to your <laughs> listeners about the hat, the hatchet, the bloody That's hatchet right. yeah. sitting on your shelf. <laughs> All right. So before we have you do a rating, which is uh, part of what we do on Charlotte's podcast, I just want to let people know we have an exciting incident here. Sammy is a, a young woman. She's the, the daughter of Kurt, who's a friend of uh, Fuse's. And she is sexually assaulted by Pacho Craig, this media mogul, and they're trying to figure out what to do. So, you know, he he's he's going to plan this sort of revenge. But at the same time, you've got this other plot line working to where, you know, Fuse is on the end of being investigated by the incursion where he works. And there's this, you know, person who's working to get him. And I was just thinking, you know, you got two two journalists trying to take someone else down Who's got the moral high ground here? Both are meant to destroy someone else. Well, it's a great question because a lot of times I have gotten the question in my business. Um, I've had to address the issue of journalists tend to have a mantle of virtue. Um, whoever they are destroying, they are destroying for the people. They're doing it for you, Landis. Um, <laughs> and and I find that to be ridiculous a lot of the times. I mean, certainly if you have a journalist inv investigating genuine corruption, I mean, I think that that's a good thing. But we've now gotten to a point where you can just go after people you don't like. And is that is that noble? And so you have the conundrum in the book where my alter ego fuse is doing things that in a couple of cases are downright criminal <laughs> in order to fight this journalist. But he believes that given what has happened to journalism, uh, it requires him cutting some corners and taking some cheap shots in order to stop a bad guy. Mm. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about what justice means uh, after the reading here. But let's do a little reading. This is from the beginning of the book. We're we're in first person. We're in the uh, main protagonist's head. Uh, so whenever you're ready, take it away. Okay. Whatever the hell I had been doing at work the past few years no longer mattered. I thought for sure that my investigative series on the presidential candidate's proven mob ties would have caused a ripple with readers, but he'd been elected anyway. Nobody gives a damn. 
It wasn't easy tipping into the latter half of my 50s to reach the conclusion that a decades-long career at the Capitol incursion as one of the good guys added up to nothing more than a grease smear on a windshield. On my way out the door, after the newspaper had suspended me pending a disciplinary ex uh, investigation, an inspirational quote by the bug-eyed comic Marty Feldman had caught my eye. The scrap of paper was tacked to a cubicle and read, the pen is mightier than the sword and considerably easier to write with. What I'm getting at, I guess, is that just that my work didn't matter anymore, but that I didn't matter. If you're sensing that I was in a funk, you'd be right. I know it's not an attractive quality, and I admit I've become prone to tedious rants on certain subjects, but you can't control how you feel. You can only control what you do about those feelings. Maybe. It was about more than the impending loss of my career. Even before journalism had wilted toward extinction, my mind had become a panorama of catastrophe, and I had this sense that the modern world was saying to me, look, we don't want you here. Case in point, I hate technology and technology hates me. I use a flip phone. I don't know how to text. My wife, Joey, forbids me to use the television in the house because whenever I operate the remote control, I take down the whole system. Joey is responsible for getting the cash from the bank because the last time I tried to use an ATM, the cash jammed. And when I tried to pull the bills out of the slit, the cops came and commanded me to put my hands flat against the wall. If it weren't for Joey, I couldn't function in the modern age. As I once told her, my theme song should be Tom Petty's Forgotten Man, that I share a surname with the artist only made it seem more profound. <laughs> well, look, you made it on Charlotte's podcast and you're on here uh, remotely. So you've been able to figure out something, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, a little a little bit. But uh, as you saw, I needed a little help. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, sorry, that'd be nice little help. Hey, let's talk about this idea of uh, justice for a minute, because you explore this concept in the book. I was intrigued by it as a lawyer because you've got this rape scene. You know, they're counseling the 20 year old who's who's been attacked and her options are go to the police. That's, a, that's an option. Report it, report it. Uh, another option is maybe to sue them for money or whatever. And both of those options are going to reveal, are going to result in, you know, some pushback, some whiplash, you know, there's going to be some accusations and some victim shaming. And you, you explore this idea of, you know, what's justice. And you then talk about this scheme they come up with, this vengeance or whatever. And then sort of, I'm thinking about this. So is the character is any of this really going to address the impact on the victim, the, you know, what they've gone through? And the answer is no. Is that sort of the idea that you're exploring here? Well, there's a couple points here. I mean, first of all, the book deals with character assassination, and it's a jubilee of character assassination. <laughs> yeah. You have a young woman who is concerned about coming forward because her character will be on the line. You have Fuse, who is being forced out of his newspaper based on a dubious allegation about his reputation. You have a sexual assaulter who makes his living ruin pe ruining people's reputations. Uh, Fuse enlists a young woman whose reputation, Pacho, the bad guy, had ruined. So everywhere you turn, there's character assassination. By the same token, we can't fail to mention that if Pacho is being accused of sexual assault, his reputation is now on the line. And when you are accused of something, 
guilty or not guilty, you have to address a reputational issue. So it's it, it, it's all over the place. You know, one of the things I was very aware of when I wrote the book is I am a middle-aged, straight, white guy. Nobody really wants to hear about the Me Too issue from a guy like me. So one of the things I did was I spoke to a friend of mine who's a rape survivor, an activist, and she really made a few good points that get to your question. She said, number one, if vengeance is taken, um, don't make it seem like it resolves everything because it doesn't. Number two, don't try to be the guy who gets it. Don't be the guy who says, okay, women, I'm cool. I know what you go through. I mean, how, how honestly could I, unless I had been in that situation, which I haven't been. But the final point that was really interesting is she said to me, what does Samantha get out of this? Revenge is taken. It's a lot of it's a lot of fun. What does she get? And it took me about a year to come up with the answer. And I called her back and I said, I have an experience that you don't have. I'm a parent. What do you do when all of your brains and your money ca cannot solve a problem, cannot help your kid? What do you do when you cannot help your child? And the answer is love your kid. That's all we know. If you know more than I do, let me know because I don't know. And so without ruining the book, the one thing that Samantha does know at the end of the book, even though her problem is not solved, is, boy, do people love me to have done all this. And that's, and that's really where we are, because I think one of the tough things about being a parent is before I was a parent and I would hear that somebody had a problem with a child, I would think, well, wait till this guy becomes a parent. You'll see how it's done. Mm. Uh, no, no. Uh, you know, um, there are a lot of very good people out there who have problems that they didn't cause. And a lot of what animated the book was realizing that you can have a problem with a child that you didn't cause. You could be have a career problem that you didn't cause. And there is some interplay between your own agency and whether you call it God or fortune or fate or the universe, there are other things beside you that have a say in all of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's well said. And 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 for the listeners, you're gonna you're gonna be thinking about those kind of things you're reading this book, but you're also gonna be on sort of a thrill ride trying to figure out, okay, how is Fuse gonna take down Pacho and how is he going to avoid being taken down himself in response to the investigation? Um and there's some fun, there's some humor in here too. In fact, uh humor, but also reflection on how times have changed when it comes to men interacting with women. And I'll just throw out the uh, the Rockford Files and get you to talk about that. <laughs> well, you know, one way that I look at the book is it's it's um, a humorous uh, take on No Country for Old Men. Um, I mean, No Country for Old Men was it was serious stuff, and here you have old men in the book. But the Rockford Files, I mean, a lot some of the book has flashbacks to the mid 1970s where all these characters became friends in junior high. And Fuse married his uh, childhood girlfriend. And the way they kind of, um, one of the running jokes in the book is when he would go and visit uh, her house when they were, they were kids, the minute the Rockford Files came on, he knew the parents were distracted and they got going on the couch. <laughs> and uh, so the, Rockford, the theme to the Rockford style, Files kind of becomes, a, 
a Pavlovian aphrodisiac uh, that whenever it plays, uh, thoughts uh, thoughts come into the mind. But you would have to be of the generation that no, knew the songs of the mid-70s, the TV shows of the 1970s, because at some level, Fuse in his 50s keeps lurching back to when he was it would, 1975, when he was 12 or 13, he even still has this crush on one of their friends who was considered quite hot uh, in 1975 when they were that age. And he's thinking, my God, I'm 55. I'm still thinking of this. What is wrong with me? But yeah. you know, and I know we still think about those times. Yeah, I'm never going to be able to watch the Rockford Files again and not think about uh, <laughs> this book, which is a great a great marketing ploy there. That's great. So, um couple of things here. You, you deal with all these themes, the Me Too era, the sort of cancer culture, old school journalism versus, you know, the modern media. You've got Washington politics involved. The, you've got the anti-millennial kind of anti-technology thing going. But you're sometimes with this voice and this first person, you're taking us to places sort of outside. And we're going to do a Patreon episode, listeners, uh, to t- talk about this topic, which is sort of backstory and subplots. Uh, after this is over, uh, I'll tell you more about that in a second. But I just want to touch one thing on that because, uh, Eric, as you're writing these, uh, you know, through points on these different plot scenes and the different characters, you know, you're throwing in all these little fun anecdotes and backstories and side stories. Do these things come to you as you're writing or is that something you're thinking about ahead of time? I'm I'm usually there are certain themes that torture me. I mean, I think that as I go for a long bike ride or a beach walk or a hike, I I am a ruminator. I mean, one of my theories about writers and you can tell me whether this is your experience is we're not people who let things go. I mean, there's there's a a funny anecdote about Chekhov where somebody said to him about a problem he was having, this too shall passes and Chekhov said nothing passes. <laughs> And I think that that's true of writers. And there were a few things that were haunting me as I was writing the book. One theme is the theme of obsolescence, which we discussed. Uh, what do you do when your skills and your outlook, you're, you're living in a world that you don't really understand? I mean, I'm politically pretty centrist guy, but there are some things that I see going on in the news that... I would love to tell you that I'm totally woke and I totally get it. I don't. Um, I try, um, but there are things that I see that that don't make sense to me. I also think another theme is there is an ongoing discussion in the book with Fuse's father, who is a very, very difficult character, probably bipolar, borderline personality, and you get to see a bit why Fuse is like he is with these encounters with the father who has dementia, but every other word is, you know, you're unsupportive. Uh, here I am dying of uh, mesothelioma and I and Fuse will go, oh, it's, it's mesothelioma this week. Yeah, it's really hard with the sickle cell anemia I have. And, and you know, the, the father has no problem uh, throwing out all of these illnesses and what do you do when you're trying to live your life and you're being told you're a monster? And look, Fuse has his flaws, but it would be hard to read this book and conclude that this guy's a monster. I mean, he is, yes, he does some shady things to go and get Pacho, but as a family person and as a parent, um, he's as sweet a guy as you can imagine. 
But this theme of a dealing with a, an aging, impossible parent is something that comes comes up. And the other sub theme, and you alluded to this, or I did, is Fuse's daughter is in her teens. She's not a bad kid, but she's had brushes with juvenile delinquency, and she comes from a good home. Um, you, you know, th this is not a situation where there's horrible, abusive parents, and so. What do you do when you feel you're losing control of your kid? And so these are all things that I ruminate about and they've tortured me that I figure out what do I do with it? And so what I do is I find a way to put it in the book. <laughs> That's good. We're going to talk about how that works and how you seamlessly put some of that in, how you do a backstory on Patreon uh, in just a little bit. But uh, just wrap up here with a couple of writing life questions, Eric. Uh, you've written uh, seven novels, four nonfiction books, uh, you, uh, so you've had some experience with this thing called writing. I sometimes uh, ask authors this question. I'll ask it to you. If you could tell your younger writing self something of value that might have helped you when you were working on that, that first uh, novel or that first nonfiction book based on things you've learned since then, what would it be? Don't reach the conclusion that your life is as fascinating as you think it is. The world is not sitting by waiting to hear about little Eric. And I think that one of the things that took me some time was learning to be comfortable with making things up. Um, I mean, I grew up in a, in a neighborhood where it was the capital of organized crime. I grew up around these guys. It wasn't unusual where I grew up to have a relative, a neighbor, a family friend associated in that world in New Jersey. And I remember thinking, oh, well, don't exaggerate or put make yourself a bigger part of that world than you were because that's not honest. And I thought, eventually my editor said to me, you know, maybe your character did get involved with some bad stuff. So what? Stop feeling this need to alternatively um, feel this need to be 100% honest about your life. And number two, don't feel guilty that, oh man, I, my life isn't interesting because I really wasn't in a shootout. <laughs> right. um, but, I, but I do think that a lot of people are under the impression that the world is interested in reading their diary. We are not. And no, I've never been to a mob summit. I've grown up with mobsters. I've, I've, I've met mobsters and have interviewed them and grew up around them. But yes, in my fiction, I do make things up and you have to get comfortable doing that. And what, what kind of advice do you give to those uh, friends of yours who come up and say, hey, I love your books. I think I've been thinking about writing a novel myself. How, how do I go about that? Well, I, I get that get that a lot, and you know, part of me wants to smack them because <laughs> you know th this is this is a process that, as you know, right. there is a tremendous amount of sacrifice and and alone time. And what I said say to them is, do you want to be a writer or do you want to be known as a writer? Um, because if you want to be a writer, shut up and write the damn book. If you want to be known as a writer and you're already fast for forwarding to the interview with Oprah, uh, <laughs> you're going to be in for quite a surprise. But stop talking about the book you have in you and write it or shut up. <laughs> That's great. That's great advice. Every, every author I've interviewed works really hard on their books. They spend a lot of time in the seat. They do a lot of research. They think hard about what they're doing. They do it in part, I think, well, in a lot of sense, because they just love to write. Uh, in fact, I laughed. Somebody was on the show said, Someone asked him that same question, and, and it was more like this. 
I don't really like to read much myself, but I like to write a book. And they're like, well, then you're in the wrong, <laughs> you're in the wrong world here. Well, you know, it's funny you say that. I mean, this, I hope this doesn't fall under the too much information category, but one of the reasons I started writing is I had very difficult time reading. I mean, it was later diagnosed as attention and issues and dyslexia. But when I was a little kid, I didn't pay attention in class. But interestingly, when I observed the world and I wrote, my thinking and writing was clear as a bell. It was all on the intake. I'm a very inefficient reader to this day. And so one of the reasons I got started writing was because I didn't read that well. And I found that if I was observing what was happening in the classroom, why do the cute girls all like the horrible guys? And I would sit and write about that. <laughs> and my writing was clear, my spelling was clear, yet if you were to ask me to go through a thick, dense book, uh, I, I, I couldn't do it. I think we found the title for your next book, Why All the guy, All the Girls Like the Horrible Guys. Yeah, so, Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, look, uh, listeners, uh, we're going next to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Rears Podcast, where we take a deeper dive with our authors on topics related to the uh, craft of writing and the business of writing. And as I said, Eric and I are going to tackle this idea of subplot and backstory. So join us there. It'd be a lot of fun. Eric, I want to thank you uh, for being a part of Charlotte Rears podcast. Thanks so much. This was a lot of fun, Landis. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.